Thank you, O Lord, for bringing us together once again. Thank you for, for meeting us in the wilderness. We are definitely in a wilderness in our world, in our culture, but each of us has a, our own wilderness journey uh, that we're dealing with. And we just ask you now to continue to, to guide us as you guided your people. Lord, we learned that in the wilderness, life is hard. It is a challenge. It is a push. But you have given us these obstacles, these challenges, so that we will, so that we will push back so that we will grow deeper, so that we will be strengthened by your power. So, Lord, help us to understand your purposes in the wilderness and to help us understand this awesome book that we are studying. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, of course, last week I, I, I revealed to you or reminded you that, that the book of Numbers is a book that suffers terribly from historical marketing. Uh, marketing. Meaning that the, whoever named, whoever took the original Hebrew name of the book of Numbers and gave it the book Numbers when they translated it from Hebrew to Greek in Alexandria in Egypt, when they did that, they really did a disservice to the book of Numbers. Because I'm not a numbers guy, maybe you're not a numbers person, there are numbers people around. I mean, you know, you look at... A friend of my old congregation, Paul Mancy, he was, a, he was an accountant for the Savannah River site. He was in their high administration. He was one of those guys you could throw a spreadsheet in front of him. He said, you didn't carry the two on line 128. You know, he's just one of those. And he loved it. For him, it was like a symphony or, or our own Rich Delano. Rich looks at, at the financial reports and he, and he sees things in them. I, I'm, I, the only page I understand on those reports is the page number at the bottom. It's like he says on page 21, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, do I have a 21? Oh, I got to turn it over. Sure. I do have one. So, but, but, you know, there's some people who just really resonate with those numbers. I'm not, that's not me. You know, my, you know, my son, Bo has been daily walking up beside me and doing this. What is he doing? He's measuring. He's trying to see not, I mean, he is now as tall as I am. He's trying to see the day when he will actually be taller than me. And if you eliminate his hair, he's almost there. I mean, it's so, but he's getting there and, and, you know, he measures, you know, I weigh myself every morning. You know, the, we, you know, we do those things because those things matter. We, we measure what matters to us. You know, take, for example, this, you know, what is this? This is showing uh, the results of the 2020 census, showing demographic shifts in the country. What do those pluses and minuses mean? That's how that's how the populations have changed the representatives, uh, the representation in the U.S. House of Representatives. You think those numbers matter? Absolutely, they matter. You know, they're, I mean, so, so numbers matter, but they, number for, they matter for a variety of different reasons. One of the things that I've always said is that we have never had a number join this church. Whenever somebody joins this church, that's not a number, that's a person. And numbers matter because people matter. And yes, I mean, sometimes we get too obsessed with scale and numbers and things like that. But every number matters. We have to remember that, that you know, God knows the number of hairs on your head. That's not because he's really into hair. That's because he said, that's his way of expressing that I really do care you. I, uh, about you. I really do know you. I know the number of cells in your body. He really does know these things because he cares about us. But why, you know, why do we care about numbers? And why is the book of numbers 
so, so attentive to numbers. Well, the book of Numbers is attentive to the numbers of the people of Israel and things like that because the purpose of Numbers is to account for the people's journey from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. Now, when you're going on a journey, numbers matter. How many of you have ever seen this movie, Home Alone? <laughs> what is the premise of Home Alone? The premise of the Home Alone is, is that the family, this, you know, the whole extended family is going on a trip together to Paris and they have this crazy night, and they lose track of the one kid, Kevin. They think he's on the van. They do a head count, but it turns out to be the neighbor kid on there. Sorry, spoiler alert, but it's been out for 30 years. Um, <laughs> you know, and they think, they think that they've got everybody, but they leave one behind. You know, and, and we have to remember that you know, when Jesus said, you know, if, you know, if you've got 100 sheep and you've got one that's lost, and 99 over here, you know, that, that we go and find the one that gets lost. It's not, it's, it's really not, it's not that Jesus says the other 99 don't matter. Please never hear that. There's some people who interpret that as the other 99 don't matter. It's like, no, that's the reverse problem. Jesus would be like, if 99 of them were lost, let's go find the 99. We got, I got the one here with me, that's good. Let's go find the other 99. But numbers matter because those numbers represent people. And it's the first rule you learn in youth ministry. Um, two years ago, uh, I and Morgan uh, accompanied our youth group to Big Bend, to the wilderness of South Texas, to Big Bend. This is where we went. And, and here I, I had to remember that the first rule of youth ministry, and the first practical rule that matters at all, is that you bring back exactly the number you left with. <laughs> you don't bring back less because you don't, and you don't want to bring back more because that means that the boys and the girls were mixing and you should have been keeping an eye on things. So you got, I mean, so the rule of the first youth of the, I mean, yes, of course, theological rule that you represent Christ, that you are Christ and then you build a relationship. But the first practical rule is you bring back as many as you took, no more, no less. I mean, because those numbers matter. Those people matter. What, ma what we measure matters and what matters we measure. And when you think about the logistics of moving a country, moving a people that God cares about, those numbers matter. How many of you, if I asked you how many children do you have, would say about four? <laughs> None. You know, you know exactly how many kids you have. You know, and if you don't know pretty much where they are within reason, you want to find them. Nobody says, nobody says, I have a, I, you, know, I, no, you know, if somebody asks me, Bob, how many kids do you have? I don't say about three. I don't say, uh, I think more than one. I have two children, and that's it. And I know them. I know them by name. I care about them. And, and it does matter. And whenever we get in a car, it's, you know, we count. You know, we make sure. Even though it's, I mean, it should be pretty easy to eyeball, but we make sure that, yes, we not only have two, but there are two. These are the right ones. So, so these things matter because when you're moving a nation, when you're moving not just a collection of people, but God's children, it matters how we do this. And that's why the numbers, the statistics, and the logistics are more than just that in the book of Numbers. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about that today um, as, you know, as one of our big themes of the book of Numbers. One of the big themes of the book of Numbers is the census. And if you look on, uh, on that chart or on that box on your, uh, on your outline, 
This is from that chart from the English Standard Version Study Bible. It explains why, you know, why the census is important. You know, people have to be organized, trained, and led to be effective in great movements. It's always wise to count the cost you know, to set, to do, to, uh, set before setting out on some great undertaking. It's important to know how many people are on your team. It's important to know how many players are on the field. It's important. All of these things do matter. So it's not just about numbers. It's about the people those numbers represent. And so that's why the census is a major theme in our study today. Now, there are four, there are four things related to statistics and logistics uh, that, that, excuse me, five things that we need to talk about today, and we're going we're gonna to kind of hit them in turn. And the reason you've got such a crazy verse and passage reading list today is because I'm kind of gathering themes from different places and kind of pulling them together so that we can, so that we can handle this in, in sort of one big chunk because, because we do want to get into the narrative parts and we want to, I mean, everybody knows about this part of numbers. I want to make sure that we get onto the other parts too. But the, the five things we're going to cover today are, number one, that numbers do matter, that God shows us in, in the book of Numbers that numbers do matter, that organization matters, that discipline matters, that resources, i.e. stewardship matters, and that direction and leadership matters. These are five themes that come out throughout the book of, of Numbers because those things matter when you're dealing with people and, play, and things you care about, right? I mean, we, I mean don't, you, don't you think in your family, numbers matter, organization matters, discipline matters, resources matter, leadership matters. In your company, in your school, these things matter, whatever it is. So, I mean, if you break down on any of these things, eventually you're going to have an unhealthy organization. So, let's talk about, let, let's go into the first one. Numbers matter. Um, Let's begin, you know, let's begin with this first, uh, first passage, verse 1, uh, 1 to 3. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers, houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. From twenty years old and upward, all, of Israel, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. So, you know, here's a question that comes up, especially for you all who were with me during the David study. David, Saul, those guys, they got in trouble for, for running a census. Why did they get in tr trouble for running a census? Because they were running the census. They were doing it for their purposes. They wanted to show off how many people they had, how much wealth they had, how many soldiers they could muster, how, how powerful their reach was. God is doing this for a different reason. God is saying, we need to know, or you need to know, who is in your, who's on your team, how many people are in your tribe, how many people you are responsible for, and all of these types of things. But you need to know that my children count, so count my children. And so, here's the, you know, so here is God telling Moses, under direct command, to count the nation. Now, again, we need to understand that there's a difference between God decreeing something and us just taking the, the idea that God decrees something and then we decree it on our own. We see this all the time based on the book of Numbers later where people say, oh, well, God told the people of Israel to go kill all these infidel pagans. Therefore, God wants us to go kill all infidel pagans. No. God wanted them to go and wipe out the, you know, the, 
uh, Og or the Ammonites or the Amorites or something, you know, those were people under a curse because they were really bad people. That is not a blanket statement. Go wipe out every Gentile pagan. And yet people for a variety of reasons throughout history have used the Bible to use that to wipe out, you know, indigenous peoples or enemies or people across the river for generations now. And, you know, it's not a blanket statement. This is a time when God is saying, I want you to count my people because my people count. And so, go take a census of my people. And so he goes in and and he tells Moses, you know, I want you to go in. I want you to get the names of the tribal leaders. And I want you to get every tribe, and we'll come back to this, minus the tribe of Levi. They're going to be carved out for a special purpose. Um, We want to know the number of tribal laity. And so as you go through that first part, and this is the, this is, I'll go ahead and say, this is the part where people start to blur. They begin to fly over these parts and they start to read, and Manasseh had, and Gad had, and Dan had, and Reuben had, and it's like, all right, you know, it's like, and then you're like, at that point you're like, and then I got to go to Sam's, and then I got to get, I got to pick up the flower, and then I got, I mean, so, you know, like, and, and it just gets into a cadence, and then you're finally, it's like, and then something exploded. Oh, okay, well, now I'm back in. I'm back in. Here's the narrative again. So, but, but again, it, he goes through, and he, and he lists, I mean, the Bible lists the, the size of the tribes and their leaders and all that, and the, of course, the largest tribe is the, is the tribe of Judah. And the smallest tribe is what they frequently call the half-tribe of Manasseh. And Manasseh, it's, it's, it's interesting, again, how the numbers work out. The, bo- the, the tribe of Levi is going to be sectioned off for special purposes. And there is, you know, the, have you ever noticed there's, there's no tribe of Joseph? Why is there no tribe of Joseph? Well, that's, that stinks. I mean, he's a pretty great guy, right? And I don't mean Joseph, father of Jesus. I mean Joseph, who became second in command to Pharaoh. Well, it's because he, his inheritance goes to his two sons who were, uh, who were Ephraim and Manasseh. So that's why they're called the half-tribes. So, I mean, I wouldn't go around if you have twins calling them your half-kids. Um, that's not a good plan. But, it, but the idea is, you know, that, that we're going to split Joseph's tribe, the kind of, in, in the tribal math, we're going to make this work out. So that when Levi gets pulled, you still got you still got some 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 uh, symmetry here, but but again, God and I'm not gonna I, I'm, I've already beaten this topic to death. God wants people to know that that you matter. You know, if, if I care about the number of hairs on your head, I care about the number of people in your family, in your tribe, in your in your clan, in your cohort. That's really important. So numbers matter. The second thing, let's go ahead and just move on to the next thing. The next thing is that organization matters. Organization matters. Why does that matter? It's because our God is a God of order. Our God is a God of design. Our God is a God of peace, not chaos. The word for chaos, you know, and it's fascinating in in the uh, book of Genesis, when, when, it's, when Genesis is telling us the story of creation, it says that the world was formless, or it says the universe was formless and void. Existence, really, was formless and void. The words in, the words in Hebrew are tohu vavohu, which is even, if you've never tried to say that, it's even hard to say. Our, our English palates don't want to make that word, but try and say it. Tohu vavohu. 
It's like, it's like your tongue gets in the way of your breath, kind of. But it, it, is, it, is the, it is the word used to describe the splashing of water. You know, it's like, have you ever tried to like trace a wave or capture it in a photograph or something like that? It's, it's, it's just hard. It's hard to freeze it in time. It's just chaotic. Um, my first real introduction to the concept of tohu vavohu after, um, uh, after, after learning it initially in Hebrew was when I was in seminary and uh, flag football is a big deal in, in my seminary. And uh, we had a team our first year, and you know, I, I was like one of the only people on the team who had ever played organized football before. And it was, it, it was, it was a really bad news bears sort of situation. And, uh, and it was so funny because one of my professors who was a former football coach, former high school football coach, came out and he looked at my team, he looked at the practice we were running, he looked at the apparent skill level and knowledge of the game, and, and he just said, tohu vavohu. <laughs> Formless and void. That, I mean, it is utter chaos. God, our God is a God of organization and order and design. And he decreed, he, you know, he had a process for making the world. He spoke the world into creation, and it makes sense. It lines up with geological epochs, historical geological epochs. I mean, it, it really does make sense. I mean, you, you know, you don't make the land animals before you make the land. You don't make the sea animals before you make the sea. I mean, it's, it, you don't make the birds before you make the sky. I mean, it's, it, I mean, he had a process for that. Organization matters, and that matters not only in creation, it matters with his people. And so organization does matter. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, the people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. So if you're going to organize, what's your organizational principle? What's your center? What's the hub around which you organize? And that is the tabernacle. Now what was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was the portable temple, the portable holy house of God, the tent of meeting. It was this, I mean, there are all kinds of subparts of it, but it was this, it was a, a beautiful, sturdy, I mean, we say tent and we tend to think like a, like a really, really light backpacking tent, but I mean, this, this thing was sturdy. I mean, it was, it wasn't like a pillow fort you build in your, you know, in your living room when you're a kid. This is a real tent. I mean, it is a real, I mean, it is a worthy but portable house for God, for a God on the move. And it became the center of the Hebrew camp, the hub around which the entire wheel turned. And it's important to think of it that way. It really is important for it to think about that. It, I mean, it was the, that, was the, that was the foundation stone upon which the rest of the house would be lined up and organized. And so, you know, and, and even when we think about that, you know, when Jesus says, I am the cornerstone, he, I, mean, I, we would, I mean, when he says that, he says, I am the rock upon, you know, and, you know, and, and you build a house on the rock, we'll, be, you know, we'll have a firm foundation. Yes, he is the foundation. But when he's talking about being the cornerstone, he's talking about setting the stone that's going to ultimately align and organize the rest of the house. So our God is not a God of chaos. I mean, just if you made it through Leviticus, Look at the amount of detail that God put into 
the making of the tabernacle and all of the stuff that went into it. So those things are really, really important for, uh, you know, that, that's really important. And, and, and it wasn't just the center that was important, it was the, the wheel itself. How was the, how was the, the uh, camp supposed to be set up? I mean, and so you've got these tribes, you've got each one has its own assignment on the north, south, east, and west. And then the tribe of Levi is, is distributed around as well. We'll be talking more about those roles next week. Well, I mean, you, you read some about that today, but we'll be talking more about that next week. But you see, I mean, there is a beautiful symmetry here. So you, so you see Ephraim and Manasseh here. I mean, you've got those, the half-tribes there that are, um, you know, so because now Levi is in the center. So kind of like 13, it's like we can't say there are 13 tribes of Israel because that sounds oogie. I mean, there, <laughs> there are 12 tribes, uh, but there's two half-tribes in there that, that kind of help to cover the, the symmetry of it. But God is in the middle, and we'll come to that in just a second. And when they're on the move, when the people are on the move, the way that the, the, way that the, uh, that the um, march is set up is, again, with different, with different groups in a specific place. Now, why is that? Because when you're counting hundreds of thousands of people, it's good to know where they're supposed to be, right? Have you ever, have you ever tried to count a group of kids? And, and they're all moving? I mean, it's like, it, it's like, what do you do? If you're a teacher, everybody get in your seats. I need to take a head count. Everybody, stop. Sit still. I need to know where you are. Now, when it comes to specific roles and jobs, that will, that will be important at that point as well. So there was an order to these things. There, on the east side, you have the certain tribes. On the south side, uh, north side, and, uh, and west side. Um, and then, of course, you had this, this other group, the Levites, which was the tribe of Moses and Aaron, that had a special role, and we'll get into more of that next week. Um, but they're not to be included in the regular census of the people. They're not to be included in the regular arrangements of the people. Um, because God had made, basically, God has made this, the tabernacle, their, their precinct. All of the rest of these tribes eventually will get a plot of land in the promised land. The Levites' plot of land is the temple. It is the, it is the presence and house of God. That is their calling. Um, and so you have that. But all, you know, all male Le- Levites, one month and older, are to be counted. They, I mean, it's not that they're not counted too. They're just not counted among the others. So there is an organization to this. Or God does care about organizations. And if you are a Presbyterian, that should make your heart sing. Because what do we love? Committees, structures, organizations, boards, institutions. Oh, man, just give it to me. More bureaucracy, more, more organization. But, that's, but, but there, is, there is something to that. Um, you know, people say all the time, I don't like organized religion. You know what's worse than organized religion? Disorganized religion. That's, that's, where you, that's when you have cults and abuse and all those sorts of things. So, um, so organization matters. Let's go to a part that's a little bit more challenging. The next theme, discipline matters. Discipline matters. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel. 
When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him whom he did, uh, to whom he did the wrong. There's much more to this. If you are a woman reading this passage, you are going to say, this is not fair, this is not cool, what's going on here? Please understand that this is given in a context that is much broader. This, these are not the only rules of discipline for the people. But let's talk about the importance of discipline. Why does discipline matter? Well, why does discipline matter when you are moving hundreds of thousands of people in a dangerous, hostile environment? Because it's a dangerous, hostile environment. If people don't know their roles, if they don't know their place, if they don't know their, their job, their responsibilities, all those sorts of things, and if they aren't willing to stick to them on their own, then, then, then the entire group is going to suffer. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels and, and groups like that. What happens if all of a sudden one of the pilots in the Blue Angels decides, you know what, I'm going to do a barrel roll today. You know, and he's right in the middle of the formation, and he decides to do a barrel roll. I mean, you're going to have a lot of dead people. What happens when one of these tribes decides, decides, you know what, we know better than the other tribe what they're doing. We know better than, than Moses. We know better than these other people. What happens when they go rogue? What happens when a wide receiver says, I'm going to run the routes I want to run? You know, I'm not going to, I'm not, you know, forget about the, uh, forget about the play called. What happens in the military? You know, when you, know, when you have, you know, uh, when you have a soldier jump out of the, you know, some, jump out of a concealed position before his commanding officer gives the signal that we're going to do it at once. People die. There is a consequence. What happens if you don't, if you say, well, that stoplight's not for me. <laughs> that, stop line, that stop sign doesn't apply to me. Well, people get hurt. Discipline matters. Um, if you look back at the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus is about discipline. It's about the holiness of God, but it's also about discipline among the people. And, it, and the book of Leviticus is about having the discipline required to, to have the privilege of living in the presence of a holy God. So again, you've heard me say that, that in my previous church, I've worked around hundreds of people who worked every day of their lives at the Savannah River site. Does anybody know what the Savannah River site is? It's one of our nuclear labs, and for years it was a place that, that, that made weapons-grade plutonium. I mean, it, it, they called it the bomb plant. When you are dealing with that much nuclear material, it matters how you handle it. It matters how you behave. It matters how you dress. It matters where you go, and it matters how you wash yourself. Philip Yancey says that living in the, in the presence of God, with God living in the tabernacle, you know, right next door, the unshielded presence of the holy God, compared to our, our, our uh, sinfulness, is like a nuclear reactor. You know, if, if, you know if, you go too, if you're a sinner who goes too close, if you're an unholy sinner who goes too close to a holy God, you will burn up. Not because God hates you, but because you are now fissionable material. And so the book of Leviticus is designed to set up procedures and protocols and safety measures so that God can live among His people. 
and so that people can live near God. Remember, that was the way things were before the fall when he went walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening before they became sinful and before they became fragile newspaper that would ignite from a ray of sunlight. And so, the book, so all those rules of holiness, are, those are rules to discipline us so that we can live in the presence of a holy God. I mean, I, again, people read the book of Leviticus and they're like, this is so boring. The book of Numbers is so boring, unholy, you know, all these behaviors, this is so boring. You know, this is all antiquated. Well, that's the way I would feel if I was going over to one of my friend's house and I saw, you know, the safety manual for the Savannah River site sitting on, you know, sitting on a coffee table. This is the most boring thing in the world. Unless you have to work near nuclear weapons-grade material every day. I mean, think about people who have to work, who, who you know, I, I would never read a safety manual for an x-ray machine. But if you work in a doctor's office and a dentist's office, and you're doing that all day long, you better believe it. You're paying attention to how that radiation works and what you have to wear and how you have to behave. Another reason for discipline is because what happens, I mean, I mean let, let's get down to it. What was, I mean, this was a huge moving tent city. Okay? Without discipline, it becomes Woodstock. <laughs> all right? It becomes a big hippie free-for-all. Why do you think the first issues, I mean, why do you think the first issue brought up in the matter of discipline in the camp was adultery? Where's your tent? <laughs> you don't even need keys for a tent. There's no swipe lock or anything like that. I'm the blue one. You know, my wife's going to be <laughs> over at the market. I'm going to, or your husband's going to be, I mean, there, I mean, these people were living in close proximity. And human nature, such as it is, temptation is high. And there is no faster way to fracture a community than to take away those roles and not honor those roles and not take them seriously. So why does, you know, why does sexual sin, why does adultery gain such a, I mean, such a huge uh, a bit of attention in the, in the Bible? It's because it fractures community. I mean, because you can't move Woodstock. For, you know, for, for, you know, from Egypt to the promised land. It's not just because God is priggish. It's not just because God is, uh, you know, is holier than thou, although he is. Um, it's because these things fracture relationships. There is no such thing as an open culture. There is no such thing as an open culture because inevitably sin takes over and jealousy and attachment take over and rivalry leads to murder and all the, all, the, uh, all the sins of the flesh. So discipline matters. That's why as a church, we believe in discipline. And I'm not just talking, I'm not talking about punishing people for dancing, you know, or calling people out for smoking or stuff. like. I mean, I'm, not, I'm talking about the way we live together. The book of order, uh, the book of church order, our constitution, is is a covenant that we make with ourselves to say, this is how we're going to work, this is how we're going to walk together, this is how we're going to do business. You need to know that I'm not going to swerve into your lane. You need to know I'm not going to stop, uh, that, I, that I am going to stop at that stop sign. It's a, I mean, it's a covenant among us to say, we're going to hold Jesus Christ as the, head of our, as the head of our community, and this is the way we're going to treat each other. I mean, that's 
I mean, it's, again, why do we have a session? Because we have collectively decided that the best way for us to make decisions is by electing leaders who will sit in, in session and council together. That's discipline. And discipline comes from the same word as discipleship. And so discipline is about discipling people. The journey is not just from Egypt to Canaan. The journey is from slavery to freedom. And not freedom in the Woodstock sense. Freedom in the I love you, I respect you, we can live together sense. And so the wilderness journey is a, is a journey of discipline. Learning that discipline. Not the discipline that says, I'm going to punish you, but the discipline that says, I respect you enough to keep my boundaries. Isn't it interesting that among the fruits of the Spirit is listed self-control? What happens without self-control? Again, you don't, get, you don't get the nation of Israel, you get Woodstock. All right, so anyway, discipline matters. Um, we're move, we are going to make through this. We are going to make this. Um, resources matter. Resources matter. This is stewardship. The chiefs of Israel... Heads of their fathers' houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed, approached and brought their offerings before the Lord. Six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every, two, uh, for every two of the chiefs, and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord said to Moses, Accept these from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, and give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. You can go a long way, or a long time, um, if you have the resources to do it. You know, I, I have people all the time who, who you know, say, Bob, why don't we do this? It's like, well, that's easy, because there's no way we can pay for it. It's like, because, because all those vendors, all those builders, all those people that we need to do that, you know, they, they are worth their wages. We, you know, the, the alternative is slave labor or charity. Now, some of them might give it. They might give us a discount, things like that. But we do need resources. God has, has given us resources to make these things happen. But we do need resources. People are like, but, you know, we've got to have a big vision. God has all the money we need. Sure. And he's already given it to us. The hard part is getting it from you to the church, not from God to the church. That's fascinating. Tony Campolo was famous at one point for having um, been with a, a huge conference of, of people at a church. And they, you know, they had some, it was, it was at a church, and they had some big mission initiative that they, um, that they, wanted, to, uh, that they wanted to launch. And Tony Campolo, they came up and they said, uh, Dr. Campolo, would you pray that the Lord would give us the money to, uh, to pay for this initiative? And Campolo said, no, I'm not going to pray for that. He's already given you the money. I'm going to pray that he makes you give the money that he's already given you for this purpose to do this. Charles Stanley, uh, First Baptist Church of Atlanta, used to say, I'm not going to talk to you about giving. I'm going to talk to God, and he's going to talk to you about giving because he's already given you. We, I mean, how many, how many pieces of property does First Presbyterian Church own? Hundreds. Every one of your houses. How many cars? <laughs> Thousands. <laughs> How many ranches? Dozens. I mean, it, I mean, how much does God? How much property does God own through First Presbyterian Church? A lot. 
The problem is stewardship is, is using God's resources for God's purposes. We use an awful lot of God's resources for our purposes, don't we? You know, you know he gives us 100% of it, and he only asks that we use, I mean, he, actually, he asks that we use a lot, but, but he, he only expects regularly 10% of it. He's giving you 90% to not do whatever you want with it, but, I mean, does, is God short of resources? Why is the church, if God's not short of resources, why is the church limited in our resources? Resources do matter, and that's why you see built in here in the structure of Israel, stewardship. Stewardship should be a joyful thing. Have any of you ever traveled to Ghana or any place in West Africa? When they, you know, in a Ghanaian church, when they, when they take up the offering, they don't just, I mean, they don't sit quietly and listen to an anthem while the ushers pass the plate down the pew. And people pass it as quickly as they can. When they, see this thing right here? This is like a column and they're offering buckets all around it. And when they give the offering, the choir starts singing, the drums start beating, and people start dancing up to, uh, up to, the, up to the offering buckets. You know, whatever it is, this is a really fancy one, but whatever it is, and they just start putting their money in it, or if they've got a couple of chickens, basically they take it up to one of the deacons. The deacons you know, says, you know, I got two chickens here. Somebody else says, I'll give this much of the two chickens. They, take, they give him the chickens, put the money in the, in the collection thing. But then, but they don't just do it once. They come up, everybody dances up, puts their money in the plate, and then they do it again. And in, in Ghana, you know, everybody's got a name, you know, Robert, Michael, Christopher, Mary, Martha, whatever. But everybody also has a common name, which is the name of the day of the week, Yao or, um, uh, or Kwame or something like that. It's named for, and I don't remember what all of them are, but basically it's whatever day of the week you're born on, that's your nickname. So I, I think I, I'm Thursday born, uh, it would be, so my, my nickname in Ghana would be Yao. And so, you know, so they would say, all right, all Thursday borns, come up. And, and it becomes like a competition. And I realize there's a lot, I mean, there's some, probably some bad theology in that, you know, but, but there is, but, but there is a sense of joy. It is a festival. Probably, probably the offering lasts longer than just about anything else in a West African worship service. Whereas we, you know, we have such complicated relationships with money that we're just like, we don't want to deal with that. So resources matter. Finally, presence matters, which also means that relationship matters. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony. And at the evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of the fire until morning. And so it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. This could be any group of people, any corporation, any organization, except for this. What makes the difference, what makes the people of God is the presence of God. And again, the reason for all those rules and regs was so that God could live in the midst of the people. God did not say, here's your, here's your itinerary, you know, I'll meet you in Canaan. <laughs> he went on the journey with them. The tabernacle was his RV. He was with them on the way, in their midst. 
He did not outsource this. He did not send them on their own. He didn't turn them loose. He went with them. Remember, when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, what is the first part of the first commandment? I am Yahweh Eloheinu. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the first thing we talk about, I mean, one of the first things we talk about in, under this topic is the Passover. You know, what is the Passover? The Passover is not, just a, is not just a feast. It is a feast of remembrance that I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We have a history. You would still be making bricks for Pharaoh, the, the man-God, if it wasn't for me. And so it is about remembering that, but it's also about his presence. This, this cloud, the pillar, the, you know, the, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Um, this is referred to as the Shekinah, you know, the cloud of the glory of God. And the Shekinah would, you know, and, and you all have know this because you've read, what would happen was that the Shekinah, when it was time to move, would rise up and the people would pack up and and they would then move out and follow the cloud. But, but they were supposed to stay in place as long as the cloud was down. As long as God was here, you stay and you wait. How many of you have teenagers who, whether or not they really want to be helpful, I mean, like, I love Bo. He's so good. But when he, you know, but when he gets antsy, like when he's helping with a project, He's like, what do you want me to do now? What do you want me to do now? What do you want me to do now? What do you want me to do? It's like, I want you to sit there and wait for further instruction. I want you to, I want you to practice patience for the next 10 minutes. See if you can do that. Because what he wants to do is he wants to get it over with. He wants to get the job done and over with. And it doesn't matter how many, you know, how many steps we have to collapse or whatever. You know, a sign of immaturity is we just want to get it done. God says, there are going to be times when I'm just going to sit here and you're going to wait. Book of Lamentations. Great is thy faithfulness for those who what? Wait upon the Lord. Now, waiting doesn't mean, whew, I'm just going to sit around here and just kick back for a while. Waiting means we're waiting expectantly. Waiting means that while God is here, while God is positioned, we are going to wait for him, expecting that he is going to do something. And so, it's all right, but you can, you can answer that. They'll, they need to hear this. Um, um, they, but we are waiting for God. And in the process, we're learning patience. And that's one of the too, too often, what do we want to do? We're like, okay, God says that, you know, tomorrow we're supposed to be here. Let's get going. You know, does it do you any good to show, up the, at the, to show up to the airport three days in advance? No. You show up on time. Because why? Because the plane's leaving when it leaves. Now, I mean, I realize that is a complicated analogy. But, but you know, if you, go up to the, if you go up to the gate attendant and you say, I need to get out of here now. Can we, if we left now, we could, get, we could make up about 30 minutes. How fast is that plane going to move? Not at all. Matter of fact, if you listen to my sermon on Sunday, they're probably going to slow it down just to make me mad. Um, but the presence of God is there because He wants us, for 40 years, He wanted them, and they needed to learn what it meant to be in God's presence and to wait for Him and to trust Him. 
Because at first, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, at first they didn't want to follow him. And then they started, then they tried to overcome and say, well, we'll go anywhere, we'll go anywhere. Nope. You guys need to learn some things about patience, about movement, about things like that. And so you're going to learn to wait. And so when the cloud is down, we're here. And be present. Be present. You know, again, this guy right here, how many of you go to dinner? How many of you are with a friend? You're constantly checking it. Your kids do it. We do it. They learn it from us. Constant. We put it on the table. Always ready for that thing to go. Why? Because we care about what's next. We care more about what's next than what's now. We care more about who's next than who's now. I remember what Jerry Seinfeld once said. Why is it, you know, it's like, you know, the difference between men and women watching TV and the remote control is, you know, men, you know, women want to know what's on TV. Men want to know what else is on TV. You know, that's why they're always flipping around. Unfortunately, we want to know what else is out there. Sure, I got God. Yeah, I'm here in the camp. There's the cloud. What else is out there? What do the Moabites have to offer me? What do the Amorites and the Ammonites have to offer me? What do they, what do they got going on? Be present with God. Be present with the one who is present with us. So it's about the presence and relationship that comes together. The last thing I'll mention is just very quickly is that God is the leader. He is the one. By his presence, he becomes the leader of Israel. But there is an executive. What is an executive? The root word of executive is what? Execute. The executive is the one who executes the orders of the owner, the steward. He's the steward, not the owner. So, again, um, the CEO you know, is the one who executes the will of the board. Now, sometimes you have a chairman and CEO manifest in one person. But the CEO is the one who executes, theoretically, the will of the board. And Moses is the leader in the sense that he is the CEO of Israel. He is not the owner. He is not the chairman of the board. He has to follow where God leads. But it says in, in verse uh, 9, 7, and 8, it says, And Moses said to them, Wait, that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. I'll tell you that, you know, the worst thing you can do to a leader is badger them for the next step. I'll, you want to make my life better? Give me space to listen to the Lord if, as your pastor. And I don't mean, okay, we'll give you an extra 30 minutes. <laughs> Wait that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. That's not just for me. You know, don't, I mean, we, we impose so many crazy timelines on ourselves. Wait and actually listen for the Lord. So, again, statistics, logistics, these things matter. Numbers matter, organization matters, resources matter. Um, discipline matters, God, but most of all, God's presence and leadership matters. We're going to be hitting all of those themes in the rest of Numbers, but I wanted to introduce them here today. All right, I'm sorry I've taken us a little bit over. No surprise there. Um, I, need to, I need to work on the discipline matters part. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for giving us this day. Thank you for giving us this time. Thank you 
for caring enough, uh, caring enough to count us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. See you Sunday, if not sooner.